0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Stripe. Tap to pay on iPhone, and Stripe can help you grow your business's revenue and reach through accepting more in-person, contactless payments right from an iPhone. To learn how, visit Stripe.com slash tap iPhone. This
1: is the TED Radio Hour. I'm Guy Raz. So, say you were just walking down the street, and you happened to pass by a young woman wearing a traditional Islamic headscarf and loose-fitting clothing. What would you think of her? What assumptions would you make?
2: People generally assume that I'm a migrant. Maybe my English is not so good. Maybe... Generally, there is an assumption that uh, maybe I don't work, but there'll be sometimes small things that people will notice that make them think, oh, maybe there's something a bit different here.
1: This is Yasmin Abdel-Majid.
2: I think it depends on my mood that morning, because if I'm in kind of a typical Londoner outfit, say, people will often assume I'm, like, some sort of musician, right? They're like, oh, you wear colourful clothing, you've got a nose ring, oh, you must be a singer or you must be an artist. Like, especially because I'm a woman of colour, people assume that if you're, like, a kind of creatively dressed woman of colour, you're some sort of singer. And I think it also depends on what country I'm in. If I'm in Australia, I'm seen as probably an outsider. If I'm in London... I'm probably seen as someone who's British. But nobody assumes I'm an engineer. (laughs) Yasmin actually used to work on an offshore oil rig. Yes. I'm a bunch of contradictions. Um, I'm Muslim. I am a light-skinned black woman. I spent the first chunk of my life as an engineer, so I studied mechanical engineering, really loved motorsport, kind of went into that world, then ended up working on oil and gas rigs across Australia... But now I'm a writer and broadcaster, and so I spend a lot of time in the creative space doing a lot of sort of advocacy and education around the themes of unconscious bias and how who we are in the world and our experiences shape the way that we go through the world and how that impacts on the people around us.
1: Yeah, so there are assumptions that some people make based on all of the inputs that mm-hmm. they've had through film and television and the news—that just seeing you, even not even speaking to you, just that flash, that moment of passing you by—all mm-hmm. those inputs create these assumptions. And that's—I mean—and I think that's a reality in some places, right? Like some people would make those assumptions, and then there are all of these things about you that have nothing to do with that, right? What are, what are the things that they could never know when they're passing by you?
2: Yeah. I think that generally no one would assume that I spent half a decade training as a boxer or that I ran a race car team, <laughs> which I, I love telling people all that I recently learned to ski and I really love skiing. And I'll tell you what people don't expect to see on ski slopes is a black Muslim woman. Like <laughs> genuinely, I had a family say to me that when they see black people on the ski slopes, it's like if they see a black person, it is a sign of good luck. And I was like, I don't know how I feel about that. Am yeah. I a leprechaun? Um, but, it's You know, people don't assume that someone like me does like things like that or joined a sailing club because I really got into sailing or even that I recently picked up learning to play bass. I think there are all these sorts of things that one can never tell from the sort of first glance. And, and especially, I think, in the case of Muslim people, the inputs that you have aren't unbiased inputs right they're politicized there's agendas behind them they're all these sorts of things and so i often say to people like have you actually had a conversation with a muslim person you have all these views about muslim women when was the last time you sat down and and actually heard a muslim woman speak for herself and if you haven't then how could you possibly deign to think that you have an idea of what it's like to be a muslim woman in this world Hmm. and just that first moment where we begin to question our assumptions and we begin to question or acknowledge the fact that the ideas that we have may not be rooted in evidence or truth. I think that's a moment that we can really build from. No
1: matter who we are or where we come from, Our assumptions and beliefs are shaped by our experiences, our upbringing, our race, our gender, religion, culture. And those beliefs help us navigate and make sense of everyday life. But they can also mean that we believe in certain things, things that also give us a distorted view of the world. So today on the show, we're going to explore ideas around bias and perception the bias in the technology we use or in the facts we choose to accept, and even the biased shortcuts our brains take that can cloud our judgment. And for Yasmin Abdel-Majid, bias doesn't always happen consciously. It's just the filter we're seeing through. But she says we can recognize that bias and learn from it. Here's more from Yasmin
2: on the TED stage. If we want to live in a world where the circumstances of your birth do not dictate your future and where equal opportunity is ubiquitous, then each and every one of us has a role to play in making sure unconscious bias does not determine our lives. There's this really famous experiment in the space of unconscious bias, and that's in the space of gender in the 1970s and 1980s. So orchestras back in the day were made up mostly of dudes. There was up to only 5% were female. And apparently, that was because men played it differently. Presumably better. Presumably. But in 1952, the Boston Symphony Orchestra started an experiment. They started blind auditions. So rather than face-to-face auditions, you would have to play behind a screen. Now, funnily enough, right, no immediate change was registered until they asked the auditioners to take their shoes off before they entered the room because the clickly clack of the heels against the hardwood floors was enough to give their ladies away. Now, get this. The results of the audition showed that there was a 50% increased chance a woman would progress past the preliminary stage, and it almost tripled their chances of getting in. What does that tell us? Well, unfortunately for the guys, men actually didn't play differently, but there was the perception that they did. And it was that bias that was determining their outcome. So what we're doing here is identifying and acknowledging that a bias exists. And look, we all do it, right? Here, let, me, let me give you an example. A son and his father are in a horrible car accident, right? The father dies on impact, uh, and the son who's severely injured is rushed to hospital. The surgeon looks at the son when they arrive and is like, I can't operate. Why? The boy is my son how can that be? Ladies and gentlemen, the surgeon is his mother. Now, hands up, and it's okay, but hands up if you initially assume the surgeon was a guy. There's evidence that that unconscious bias exists, but we all just have to acknowledge that it's there, and then look at ways that we can move past it so that we can look at solutions.
1: I mean, the thing that I struggle with is that as much as I try to think of myself as a a person who fights against my own, you know, biases, I would be lying if I said that I didn't also engage in that unconsciously.
2: Yeah. And, you know, I'm someone that has spoken about this topic in over 20 countries, and I also suffer from these moments and these biases. And I think I was at a dinner the other day, and we were talking about, you know, interracial couples and that experience and and then I sort of I threw out to the table I said well I'd love to hear from the white guys in the room and I looked at this guy who was sitting next to me and it was like he then said well it's funny that you looked at me because I'm not white I'm half Filipino and I'm white passing but that's I don't at all identify with the idea of white and it was fascinating because that was such a moment where I was like oh wow you know I'm someone that spends all my time talking about how to challenge our biases and assumptions, and here I am making assumptions about someone based on how they look. And so I I think it's so important to acknowledge that we are wired as human beings, our brains are wired to make assumptions and make shortcuts, essentially, because we get too much information. Our brains receive all of this information and we make shortcuts to make the cognitive load easier.
1: You know, one of the things that, that I'm wondering whether there's a reason behind this, there's a there's a, a biological or a, a an evolutionary reason why we have these ingrained biases. Like, and of course, the simple explanations, sure. You know, you know, on the, on the savannas, you know, mm-hmm. early man had to make quick judgments. Like, is that beast going to attack me? Is this person from another tribe safe or unsafe? Mm-hmm. I mean, what what do you think? I mean, do you think there is a a reason why, a biological reason why we humans are kind of wired to be biased?
2: I think so. I think a lot of, I think the research does show that our brains have developed some of these biases, some as protection mechanisms. So because not all of these biases are about other people, right? Some of these biases are like confirmation bias. So when you think that something's true, your brain will take new information and use it to confirm what you already believe rather than challenge it. Or affinity bias, which is kind of what we're talking about, which is we like people that are like ourselves. Or we have all sorts of cognitive shortcuts around colours. So red, for example, is like danger and hunger and so on. So our brains have all of these shortcuts and some of those shortcuts relate to other people. And I do think that historically... How were you supposed to know who to trust, right? Like if you didn't have an international or a global or a kind of an understanding of what was right and wrong, the only way that you knew what was safe was, well, the people I know who are around me, who are my family, who are my tribe, I know them and I understand that they have the same values as me. And so anything else is a threat until proven otherwise. And also, if you think about how the brain has developed, you've got your amygdala, which is kind of the reptilian part of the brain, and that's very much fight or flight. But we also have with the prefrontal cortex, the thinking part of the brain, which can override that amygdala, which can say, all right, I have a fight or flight instinct, but I can override that and be like, well, actually, this person might be visually in my out group, but I can engage with that person or I'm evolved enough as a human being to know that anyone who looks like me doesn't automatically have to be a threat. And so I think that's kind of where we are in civilization's evolution. We're at the point where we actually can be better than our quote-unquote natural instinct. And when people sort of say, well, it is, you know, we're biologically wired to be biased, that might be true, but we can learn to manage those natural impulses to live in a civilised society in a better manner. The advice that I usually give is to go through the world with curiosity and I think recognize that yes, we can have an idea of what someone might be, but that's not the same as assuming that is how that person is.
1: Coming up in just a moment, Yasmin Abdel-Majid on how bias plays out in the real world with real consequences and how we can all try to be a little better. On the show today, ideas around bias and perception. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR.
0: This message comes from Apple Card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase. That's 3% on products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject credit approval. Terms apply. This message comes from NPR sponsor Capella University. With Capella's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Greenlight. Want to teach your kids financial literacy? With Greenlight, kids and teens use a debit card of their own, while parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and savings in the app. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash NPR.
1: It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, ideas about bias and perception. And before the break, we were hearing from Yasmeen Abdel-Majid. She writes a lot about the role that bias plays in our everyday lives. And that feeling, that feeling of being judged solely on assumptions and preconceived notions, it's something that Yasmeen has experienced firsthand. I want to ask you about um, something I read which... Um I guess last year you, you were on your way to the U.S. to speak at a conference um, about this very issue about bias. And you got to the U.S., you land, and um, you go through the what many Americans don't experience because it's not an anxiety-inducing experience for Americans mm-hmm. with passports. But for visitors to the U.S., there's this moment where you have to go through a border agent, and it can be quite unpleasant. Um, what happened to you?
2: Yeah, so I um, I was flying to the US and it is always quite a nerve-wracking experience also because I was born in Sudan and Sudan was one of the countries that was put on the Muslim ban list and there's always been a little bit of anxiety about that. Mm. And previous to the Muslim ban, Obama actually introduced this sort of list of countries that couldn't have an ESTA or what's called a visa waiver to enter the US. So as an Australian citizen, anyone could apply for this visa waiver, which meant you kind of could go in quite easily. But since I was born in Sudan, I could no longer be eligible for that. Mm -hmm. And so I got to the border and the agent said to me, why don't you have an ESTA? And I said, oh, you know, because I'm born in Sudan, I'm not really allowed or qualified for that. And he sort of looked at me and he was like, okay, well, we're just going to take you aside for further questioning to find out why you were denied an Esther." And then I get to another border agent and the woman says to me, what are you here to do? And I said, you know, I'm here to speak at this event, so on and so on. And she was like, well, look, that sounds to me like work and not business. And this is a business visa. So we're going to send you back. Hmm. And I was like, no, 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 I don't understand. Like, I'm on a visa that has been recommended to me by the state consulate. Like, to my mind, everything had been fine. But border agents have quite a lot of discretion around this sort of thing. And also, it's not an environment where... You have much power. You're not actually. You're in international space. You don't have. the The agent actually said to me, "He's like the only rights you have are those under the Geneva Convention. You can't call a lawyer. They confiscated my phone. Um, they then sort of sat me down and, and booked my flight straight away. Booked my flight back to London, where I'd flown from, and that was the end of that. And in fact, they said if you refuse to get on this plane voluntarily we will ban you from the United States for five years. And and I I mean, I can't, to take you through what that feels like, my first response was anger. I was like, how can this be happening? I've done everything right. I had people waiting for me out the gate, you know, picking me up to take me to this event. And so, you know, it was just, this wasn't supposed to be a thing. And then all of a sudden where I was born became a thing and all, there was a series of questions that were sort of increasingly aggressive and so on. You start to become quite angry and quite defensive. You're like, what's going on? This isn't fair. And then you have a moment where you realize you are literally powerless. And because of who you are, a Sudanese-born Muslim woman, nothing else matters. And it was such a humiliating Experience And one that really made you feel so small and and takes away your dignity in a way that very little else does. You know, that, that experience would have been very different if I was a different person. Yeah. If I looked different, if I was born in a different country, that experience would be very, very different. And I think it's moments like that where you are reduced to the identity that you are that remind you of still how important this work is and how much work there is to be done. I mean,
1: even if we do acknowledge the reality of bias and, and unconscious bias, I mean, do you really think it's possible to, to unravel it?
2: I mean, I think we spend a lot of time worrying about if we're good or bad people. The reality is that we all have these biases and if we are open and transparent about it, it then gives other people the opportunity to call us out or call us in kindly if those biases do occur so that we can get better. And that is the dream, right? That is the aspiration. But I think if we collectively ask ourselves and push ourselves to be unconsciously unbiased, then that's the best place to be.
1: That's Yasmin Abdelmajid. She's a writer and a broadcaster. You can see her full talk at ted.com. So many people, most people of of goodwill will try not to be biased or, or they think that they're not biased, right? But, but you know, it's it's almost like there's something in our wiring, right, as, as human beings, like we just heard Yasmin say, that make us biased.
3: Oh, absolutely. I often think about marinades. We, we marinate our food to give it flavoring. Mm. I think that we are products of our own personal marinades in terms of our biases and how they evolve. This is Marshall Shepard. If you think about your personal marinade, your your parents, your faith-based upbringing, your cultural or geographic marinades, all of those flavor who we become and
1: what biases we have. And Marshall says our beliefs and assumptions really do shape the information we seek out and share, especially scientific information. And he sees this all the time because Marshall is a climatologist, which also explains why he gets these two questions a lot. Do you believe in climate change?
3: Do you believe in global warming? Here's more from Marshall Shepard on the TED stage. I have to gather myself every time I get that question, because it's an ill-posed question. Science isn't a belief system. My son, he's 10, he believes in the tooth fairy. Consider this. You never hear anyone say, do you believe if you go to the top of that building and throw a ball off, it's going to fall? You never hear that because gravity is a thing. (laughs) So why don't we hear the question, do you believe in gravity? But of course we hear the question, do you believe in global warming? 87% of scientists believe that humans are contributing to Climate change, but only 50% of the public? How do we get there? So it begs the question what shapes perceptions about science? I think that one thing that shapes perceptions in the public about science is belief systems and biases. Belief systems and biases. Go with me for a moment, because I want to talk about three elements of that confirmation bias. Dunning-Kruger Effect,
1: and Cognitive Dissonance. So let's talk about confirmation bias. What, like, how does
3: confirmation bias work? It's simply this notion that we seek out information that already confirms what we already think or believe. And you see that in the choices that people make about what radio or television station or news network they decide to listen to or what books they read or what websites they choose to uh, visit. I'm on Twitter. And often when it snows, I'll get this tweet back to me. Hey, Dr. Shepherd, I have 20 inches of global warming in my yard. What are you guys talking about climate change? It's a cute tweet. It makes me chuckle as well. But it's oh so fundamentally scientifically flawed because it illustrates that the person tweeting doesn't understand the difference between weather and climate. I often say weather is your mood. Climate is your personality. Your mood today doesn't necessarily tell me anything about your personality, nor does a cold day tell me anything about climate change, or a hot day for that matter. You know, those are opportunities to increase science or climate literacy in those regards. They're they're cute and they're funny, but it really is steeped in, you know, what we're talking about today. Somewhat typically says that. One doesn't understand the difference between weather and climate, but it also is an inherent bias that they probably have because they don't believe in climate change
1: anyhow. Hmm. So in your talk, you also mentioned uh, the Dunning-Kruger effect. What What is that? How does that work?
3: Dunning and Kruger were two. Professors at Cornell University, psychology professors, who published a paper several years ago, uh, and they use all these fancy terms, saying that Dunning Kruger effect is this uh, notion of illusory superiority. Blah, 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 blah. Hmm. In other words, the Dunning-Kruger effect is people think they know more than they do or they underestimate what they don't know about a topic. And we see this all the time at Thanksgiving dinner or on Twitter. Twitter is a bastion of Dunning-Kruger <laughs> because you have people giving information, establishing themselves as experts with no basis for that expertise at all.
1: Yeah, and I probably do this, too. I think a lot of we people all do it. Yeah right? We all do it. There are plenty of things that I encounter every day that I sort of weigh in on when if I really think about it, I don't know as much about it as I think I do. Yeah,
3: no, we all do this. I mean, I experience it quite a bit when it comes to weather forecasting and climate change. Uh, It's very pervasive. But, you know, as I step back, I say, look, uh, you know, a couple of months ago, I had a, a leak in my yard and it turned out that the water line was leaking from the, the water box to the to the house. Hmm. You know, I, I, I quickly surveyed the landscape and said, you know what? This is above my pay grade. I'm going to call a plumber. <laughs> and so the point in that is, yeah, we all exhibit Dunning-Kruger, but let, let's kind of get back to this Experts being experts on a topic. And that's an interesting conversation in itself because sometimes I feel like we are in an era where people actually are hostile towards experts. They actually say that, oh, because you're an expert, you think you're better than me. No, that's not the case at all. I think we're equal human beings, but I think I know a little bit more about
1: meteorology than you do. So, so Marshall, finally, you talk about cognitive dissonance. And cognitive dissonance is like, you know, like sort of having faith in something that is not necessarily rooted in reality, right?
3: Oh, yeah. To me, one of the most sort of ultimate
1: examples
3: of cognitive dissonance is a fairly educated person that will walk up to me and say, yeah, you know, I think this climate change stuff is a hoax. I don't believe it at all. But, oh, by the way, did you see the groundhog forecast today? What do you think about that? So I'd say, well, I think it's a rodent, first of all. <laughs> you know, the ultimate cognitive dissonance is that, is that you're dismissing science evidence about climate change, but then you're asking me about a, a rodent's forecast for the spring. <laughs> I, I just – that those are the types of things that
1: are amusing, but I think that's really what we're dealing with. You know, I wonder whether even the, the context of our conversation could be perceived unfairly, but, but could be perceived a, as a liberal conversation because – Uh, more liberals believe the science about climate change. Yeah, I I just don't see the concept of being
3: objective as a liberal or conservative paradigm. I, I wrote an article, for example, that showed that on some issues, there are those that see themselves as conservatives that may have certain views about, say, climate change. But if you look at vaccination issues and this notion that we shouldn't vaccinate our kids, uh, you will find that some people that fall in those categories aren't conservative in other aspects of their lives at all. So I I talk to conservative groups. I talk to liberal groups, uh, policymakers of all ilk. And when you're talking to people about topics that where you, from your perspective, aren't coming at it from a political angle, but maybe they're hearing it from a political angle is you have to just try to connect the value system that resonates with them. So when I talk about climate change to a group of Republicans or conservatives, you know, I'm talking about economic issues, national security. Uh, whereas if I'm talking to a different group, I may talk more about the threat to polar bears or, or, or disease. So finding the value system at least tries to disarm those inherent biases or that inherent confirmation bias that your, mm. your audience or listener may be coming from.
1: What happens? What's at stake if if we don't work to at least recognize our biases? One of the things that I, I, I'm
3: really concerned about just as a as a society right now is the tribalism that I see across the board. If we are not fighting off our biases, we're going to continue to divide. We're going to continue to make good science information and knowledge the enemy. Mm. And that's scary because science technology and engineering is not the enemy of the people virtually everyone listening to me right now is is holding a smartphone uh, virtually everyone that's listening to me consumed information from a weather forecast today or had some type of medical procedure uh, that benefited from research and development or, or has a GPS system in their car that's that's science those are things that make our lives better but yet this sort of bias that permeates the discussion about information and science is very dangerous because it is jeopardizing our ability to move society forward.
1: That's Marshall Shepard. He's director of the Atmospheric Sciences Program at the University of Georgia. You can see his full talk at TED.com. On the show today, ideas about the biases we carry and the ways we try to address them. And like many other problems, one way to get around our biases could be with technology, because a lot of us assume that technology is always objective.
4: Well, we don't think that a machine has an opinion, Mm -hmm. and we forget that there's a programmer behind every machine that has told it how to prioritize. So that means that, you know, if you want to really run all the way with that ball, you can say that there's not a single search query that you can make that is unbiased because it's all uh, an effect of what a real person has decided that the algorithm should do. This is Andreas Ekström. Yeah, I am a Swedish reporter and author turned speaker educator. I try to understand a little bit about what's happening with society through the digital revolution.
1: I mean, is it possible for anything or anyone... Or any search result to be totally unbiased, to be completely objective. I mean, is is objectivity even, even possible?
4: Yes, for
1: undisputed scientific facts. What is the capital of Sweden? It's
4: Stockholm. It, that's undisputed. You can Google that, and I don't think you'll find a single website that will tell you differently. So, yes, there are, but they, but they're very singular, very very isolated facts like that you want to try to Google an answer to the question, why is there a, a, an armed conflict between Israel and Palestine? That's not a, a great thing to Google because that takes a lot of knowledge and historical context to, to even begin to understand. And, and sometimes we tend to mix these things up. What we're trying now, large scale, really, is we're trying to see, can we replace human judgment with an algorithm? Mm. We can gather the facts, sure, but can we gather knowledge the way we gather facts? Absolutely not. That's two completely different things. Andreas Ekstrom picks up this idea from the TED stage. And to get to knowledge, you have to bring 10 or 20 or 100 facts to the table and acknowledge them and say, yes, these are all true. But because of who I am, young or old or black or white or gay or straight, I will value them differently. And I will say, yes, this is true, but this is more important to me than that. And this is where it becomes interesting, because this is where we become human. This is when we start to argue, to form society, and to really get somewhere. We need to filter all our facts here through friends and neighbors and parents and children and coworkers and newspapers and magazines to finally be grounded in real knowledge, which is something that a search engine is a poor help to
1: achieve. When we come back, Andreas Ekstrom explains how Google search results can be manipulated. On the show today, ideas about bias and perception. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR.
3: Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Easy Cater. Committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 find food for meetings and company events. With online ordering and 24-7 live support. Learn more at easycater.com.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, AT&T Business. With a voice as calm and soothing as Rain Wilson's, it was inevitable he either worked for NPR or invented a talking pillow. He went with the pillow. Sleep with Rain, powered by AT&T Business, featuring his voice, designed to help people sleep. Kind of brilliant. Even smarter? Launching a new business with AT&T Business's security, reliability, and expertise. Make your next-level ideas a reality with the only Next Level Network. Take your business to the next level at business.att.com. From the campaigns to the conventions, from now through Election Day and beyond,
5: the NPR Politics Podcast has you covered. As Joe Biden and Donald Trump square off
0: again, we bring you the latest news from the trail and dive deep into each candidate's goals for a second term. Listen to the NPR Politics Podcast every weekday.
1: It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, ideas about bias and perception. And before the break, we were hearing from the writer Andreas Ekstrom about the inherent bias in search engines and how they can't always tell the difference between what's true and what's popular. A lot of the algorithm is based upon
4: popularity. So if, if an answer to a question is really popular, then Google tends to think that it's also correct and relevant. And why? Well, because those people are super active and link to each other and update often. And all those things, you know, it's credibility in the Google universe.
1: Andreas Ekstrom picks up his idea from the TED stage with a Google search. We'll start by Michelle... Obama, First Lady of the United
4: States, and we'll click for pictures. It's a uh, perfect search result, more or less. It's just her in the picture, not even the president. How does this work? They look at two things more than anything. First, what does it say in the caption? What does it say under the picture on each website? Does it say Michelle Obama under the picture? Pretty good indication it's actually her on there. Second, Google looks at the picture file, the name of the file as such uploaded to the website. Again, is it called Michelle Obama.jpg? Pretty good indication it's not clean Eastwood in the picture. So you got those two, and you get a search result like this, almost. Now, in 2009, Michelle Obama was the victim of a racist campaign, where people set out to insult her through her search results. There was a picture distributed widely over the Internet where her face was distorted to look like a monkey. And that picture was published all over. And people published it very, very purposefully to get it up here in the search result. They made sure to write Michelle Obama in the caption, and they made sure to upload the picture as michelleobama.jpg or the like. So you get why, to manipulate the search result. And it worked, too. So when you picture Google for Michelle Obama in 2009, that distorted monkey picture showed up among the first results. Now, the results are self-cleansing. And that's sort of the beauty of it, because Google measures relevance every, every hour, every day. Uh, however, Google didn't settle for that this time. They just thought that's racist, and it's a bad search result, and we're going to go back and clean that up manually. We are going to write some code and fix it, which they did. And I don't think that anyone in this room thinks that that was a bad idea. Me neither. But then a couple of years go by, and the world's most Googled Anders. Anders Bering Breivik uh, did what he did. This is July 22nd in 2011, and a terrible day in Norwegian history. This man, a terrorist, um, blew up a couple of government buildings, walking distance from where we are right now in Oslo, Norway, and he traveled out to the island of Utøya and shot and killed uh, a group of kids. Almost 80 people died that day. And a lot of people would describe this act of terror as... Two steps, that he did two things. He blew up the buildings and he shot those kids. It's not true. It was three steps. He blew up those buildings, he shot those kids, and he sat down and waited for the world to Google him. And if there was somebody who immediately understood this, it was a Swedish web developer, a search engine optimization expert in Stockholm named Niki Linqvist. He told everybody, if there's something that this guy wants right now, it's to control the image of himself. Let's see if we can distort that. Let's see if we in the civilized world can protest against what he did through insulting him in his search results. And how? He told all of his readers the following. Go out there on the internet. Find pictures of dog poop on sidewalks. Publish them in your feeds, on your websites, on your blogs. Make sure to write the terrorist's name in the caption. Make sure to name the picture file. Breivik.jpg. Let's teach Google... But that's the face of the terrorists. And it worked. Strangely enough, Google didn't intervene this time. They did not step in and manually clean those search results up. So the million-dollar question, is there anything different between these two happenings here? Is there, is there anything different between what happened to Michelle Obama and what happened to Anders bering Breivik? Mm, of course not. It's the exact same thing. Yet Google intervened in one case and not in the other.
1: In this example of Anders Breivik and Michelle Obama, I mean, I think most of us would say, mm-hmm. "Yeah, that was a, that was a right thing to do, right?" You 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 don't want sure uh, one, and you you do want the other thing to happen. So, um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but I guess what you're arguing is that yes, in this case, it, it is a good outcome, but. Mm -hmm. what if it's a more of a gray area right like what happens then yeah and
4: and this is and i use the example just because it's so easy to to just we can agree you know that a mass murderer is not somebody that we need to look after a whole lot when it comes to his his search results right we don't have to care so much about that because he maybe he has consumed those rights if you will however just make it a little more difficult. Let's just um, let's just you know make it about two regular people who are fighting for the same political office, or let's just make it whatever we want to make it. Um, immediately, you get to a point where where you have to say, "Well, Google, you did manually actually change this. That means that you have an opinion. You have a bias." And that makes you editors, you know. So let's just take an easy example. If you Google for the Holocaust, you don't immediately see uh, the worst case of people saying that it never happened, right? So they have actually manually gone into their search results just to make sure that people who said the Holocaust was was a hoax, uh, they don't get that top-ranking space. And everybody, you know, would say that okay, well, that was a good decision, right? Because that's a hoax, and those people are bad people. And of course, we should do that. I agree with that. But then, that also means that, uh, you know, human judgment has just taken place. Where do we draw the line? Where? What else, Google? You know, there are other bad things out there. What else is it that you shouldn't uh, be linking to? What else is there? And in the moment where Google accept that they have that responsibility, oh, congratulations! You're the editors of the world.
1: Mm-hmm. I think I understand your point here, but, I mean, what what do you expect Google mm-hmm. or anyone in that position to do to, to not intervene?
4: I'd like to for the battle to be not necessarily to fight bias because I think maybe that's impossible. There are just some experiences that are so profound and so... Um, they're shaping us so so strongly that I think that we can probably never uh, be completely neutral and free from them and you know what I'm not even sure that I would want to be that person um, I'd, I'd like to ca- I don't mind carrying a, a set of values with me I think maybe that's a part of being human but how about um, making sure that we're all really aware that we have them? And then be able to talk about them and, and identify when they come into play and, and really mess with our judgment because it, you know, sometimes that happens. That would be probably a better starting point or, or even a better end goal. Let's just agree that this is something that we all have and carry. Let's make sure that it doesn't influence us in an unhealthy way.
1: That's Andres Ekstrom. He's a journalist and author of several books in Swedish, including The Google Code. You can see his full talk at
5: TED.com. There was a time when we had a team building exercise and there were 16 people and we were in a rowing boat, one of those long slender boats that you see racing on a river. And the goal was to go straight. That's really all we had to do.
1: This is Tony Salvador. He has a PhD in experimental psychology.
5: And the person who was leading us was facing us in front of the boat, and he told us to sit in a very particular way and to position our bodies in a very particular way and then to row in a very particular way. And there were exactly three of the 16 who did what he said.
1: I mean, were people just not able to follow directions, or like what was happening?
5: Yeah, I think that people have an idea of what it looks like to row a racing skull. People were doing that. Mm. And they weren't listening to the broken down instructions that the coach was giving us. And I think that's a form of bias. They were biased towards their imagination of what it is that they're supposed to be doing. I think sometimes we're in a script right? We're kind of in a show, we're in a performance, and we think we're doing the thing that we're supposed to be doing because it looks like in our mind's eye what it is that we're supposed to be doing. Yeah. And yet it's not what we're being asked to do.
1: What Tony's describing is something he calls the listening gap, something he observed while doing research at Intel for more than 20 years. Tony Salvador picks up the idea from the TED stage.
5: I've heard a lot of stories, a lot of people's stories. Businesses talking about their IT problems. I've heard uh, people tell me what it's like to be families in the Midwest of the US. I've heard people from 30 different countries, all walks of life, tell me all kinds of stories. I know a little something about listening. And so there was some professional interest when I was trying to wonder why this rowing was so difficult. And as I thought about it, I was thinking about the kinds of biases and preconceptions that we bring when we enter into a conversation, even if it's a conversation like rowing. And the one that I want to talk about today is this notion of cognitive dissonance. Dissonance is this feeling that we get of anxiety or discomfort when we're holding discrepant ideas in our heads at the same time and we try to mitigate that and make it better.
1: So this idea of cognitive dissonance that you talk about, right? um, I mean, essentially, we are kind of tricking ourselves into believing a different narrative
5: right I think when we're presented with something that doesn't conform to our expectations now we have to reconcile what that means we have to reconcile our beliefs or our expectations with something that's happened outside of ourselves and and that reconciliation is difficult so that's why we hear what we want to hear yeah, I think the first is that it's easy. It, it's, it's really safe and it's really easy. If we hear things in a way that conforms with how we see the world, then we don't have to do much work. And we don't have to reconcile differences. We don't have to change our behaviors. We don't have to make um, tough efforts to do things in a new way. So as a second exercise, think about Tim and Beth and their two kids and a family I was visiting back around 1997. And we were doing the thing we do, visiting families and talking about different things. And eventually we sort of rolled around to the topic of cell phones. Pretty popular item in 1997, just coming on board. And Beth was telling a story about how it would have been handy to have one of these cell phones, or at least for Tim to have one, while he was climbing Mount McKinley in Alaska that was taking him a month with no way to contact her. And she had heard on the news that there were some problems up in Mount McKinley, and she didn't know if it involved Tim or not. And at this point, Tim kind of chimes in, and he goes, yeah, you know, I used to do all this dangerous stuff, mountain climbing and hiking and all that. Never got hurt. Then I started riding bicycles. That put me in the hospital. And Beth continues the story. She says, yeah, he fell off his bike, and he had a brain injury, and it put him in the hospital for a month. I didn't know... If he was going to recover, when he was going to recover, how much he was going to recover, I had to just deal with it. And as she told that story, as I was listening, that story wasn't about cell phones and it wasn't about Tim hiking. That story was about her relationship with Tim, how much she worries about him when he's doing these things, but how much she loved him and didn't want him to know that she was worrying about those things because it would diminish his enjoyment of them. So I pulled him aside and I said, Tim, And I told him what I just told all of you about Beth. And he was flabbergasted. He said, wow, I would never thought about it that way. You're right. That makes a lot of sense. And then I was flabbergasted. I had no idea that he didn't know. It's his wife.
1: So, yeah, I mean, so if we know we all have these unconscious biases, is there a way that we could, I don't know, solve for them or try and balance them out to make us a little bit less biased in the way we see the world?
5: Well, I have to think the answer is yes. There was a I think it was a This American Life where they were talking about refugees refugees. They can't go home. And there was a guy who didn't believe in them.
2: Uh, uh, I don't believe that either. Why don't you believe it? I don't believe all that stuff.
5: And the producer said, what do you mean you don't believe in them? And said, I don't believe they exist. Initially, I was like, wow, what an idiot. How can he not believe in refugees? That's the dumbest thing I think I've ever heard. But that was me putting my own lens on his response, especially because of the setup and where the podcast took place and what part Hmm. of the states and all of that. So pure bias on my part. If I stopped and thought about it and had a compassionate moment and said, maybe he's not an idiot. Let's just imagine. What was he thinking? What was he trying to say? What was he not able to articulate really clearly? That opens the door to hearing something else. It's stopping and asking a question and saying, maybe that's not what he means. Maybe that's not the way I should be hearing him. <laughs> and that part is hard. I think you have to listen with compassion. I think you have to listen intently. Yeah. And it helps you, too, as the listener. We have to release our biases. We have to release our preconceptions. We have to start every conversation fresh. And I'm not the first one to say this, but we have to be vulnerable. We have to listen to ideas that we may not like and entertain them and struggle with them and keep them in our heads for a period of time until we develop a mutual understanding. So let's go back to the rowing example. In this case, we entered that example with a preconception of what it is to row a boat. We knew what we wanted to do. The boat captain had a slightly different idea. To row together, we had to sit in a particular way and do those particular things. It took a long time to get through our preconception of what it means to row a boat. And if he had been a little bit better, he would have realized we had that preconception, we could have talked about it, and maybe made a little bit of progress more quickly. But it was still a hard thing to do. That's a pretty easy listening gap. Boat captain yelling at us, telling us what to do until we did it right. We're hearing still, I believe, what it is we want to hear. We're certainly not listening for what's not being said. And so, as individuals, as colleagues, as an industry, who are we going to listen to? How are we going to listen to them? Will we have the collective humility to be vulnerable enough, to open ourselves up, to listen carefully enough, so that we can struggle with those differences and those challenges to understand enough to build the things that we need to build to design our future together. And the irony of all of this is that as we become increasingly digital, as everything we do is increasingly mediated by digital technologies, to design our future, we're going to need to do something that's intensely human, that we can only do for each other, person to person. Listen. Thank you.
1: That's Tony Salvador. He's an experimental psychologist. You can see his full talk at TED.com.
2: I tell you, friend, what you better do. You gotta stop, look, and listen. Hey, you don't know what you're missing. You gotta stop, look, and listen. Cause you might be missing kissing. If you're traveling slow, you go a long, long way.
1: Hey, thanks for listening to our show on bias and perception this week. If you want to find out more about who was on it, go to ted.npr.org. To see hundreds of more TED Talks, check out ted.com or the TED app. Our production staff at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Sanaz Mishkanpour, Janae West, Neva Grant, Casey Herman, Rachel Faulkner, Diba Motasham, James Delahousie, Melissa Gray, and J.C. Howard. With help from Daniel Shukin, Mia Venkat, and Dareth Gales. Our intern is Katie Monteleone. Our partners at TED are Chris Anderson, Colin Helms, Anna Phelan, and Janet Lee. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Ideas Worth Spreading right here on the TED Radio Hour from NPR.
0: With Capella's FlexPath Learning Format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.